This podcast is made possible by the good people at Boopa. Boopa is a health and care company committed to helping more than 5 million Australians live longer, healthier and happier lives. To learn more about Boopa, jump online and check them out. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? As a global movement grows to declare that the world is facing a climate emergency, we're wondering how we as eaters can help reduce our own environmental impacts. As it turns out, one of the easiest ways might also be one of the simplest ways to improve our overall health, eating more plants. Welcome to In Good Health, a podcast about the forces which push and pull us through the world, our bodies, the food we eat, the way we live. I'm Dr. Sandro. And I'm Dewi Cook. In this episode, Sandro gets in the backseat of a car with the leading nutritionist, author, Order of Australia recipient and household name, Dr. Rosemary Stanton. No, I really do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I should be opening the door for you. Ooh. Oh, it's a bit tired. Lucky I'm skinny. <laughs> and they chat about the trends and the discoveries that she's seen in her decades of researching, writing and, yes, eating food. And greens, we love them. And we're going to chat to someone who's made them his life. But first, let's take a deep dive into a popular idea. Can cutting out meat help save the planet? The way we produce food and what we eat contributes to the loss of natural ecosystems and declining biodiversity. The people you'll be hearing from are scientists from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, an esteemed group from across the globe backed by the United Nations. They launched a report in 2019 looking at how our land use has contributed to greenhouse gas emissions. And one of the biggest factors? Food. The food system as a whole, which includes food, food production and processing, transport, retail consumption, loss and waste, is currently responsible for up to a third of our global greenhouse gas emissions. The report tells us that about one quarter of the world's ice-free land, and that is land that's not covered in snow caps, has been subjected to human-induced degradation. Things like deforestation and soil erosion are sometimes the consequence of heavy agriculture, and the impact of industrial-scale livestock farming is particularly intense. This is a problem because land can be both a source and a sink of greenhouse gas emissions. So if we're using land to create more emissions through, say, clearing forests for animal farmland, then we're also losing the ability to capture those emissions. But the IPCC report does not definitively recommend an entirely plant-based diet. That's not their mandate. And they're very clear that dietary choices are influenced by a range of factors, including cultural beliefs and local farming practice. But here's what they do say, and there's a key word here. It's balance. At the same time, a move to more balanced diets could help us adapt to and limit climate change. Some diets require more land and water and lead to higher emissions than others. For example, diets that are high in grains, nuts and vegetables have a lower carbon footprint than those that are high in meat and they lead to better health outcomes. 
The panel's report says that by 2050, changing people's diets could free up millions of square kilometres of land and could cut emissions between 0.7 or 8 billion tonnes of CO2 compared to what they would be otherwise. To put this into perspective, globally, we emit just under 37 billion tonnes of CO2 each year. So it's not the solution, but it's not nothing either. We're eating more meat than ever, and our calorie intake has increased by about a third since the 1960s. And yet, there are more than 820 million people around the world who are undernourished, and perversely, between 25 to 30% of our food is wasted or lost under current food production practices. And there's something just not right about that, isn't there? So this idea about understanding the impact that our food choices have on the earth is certainly getting more popular as people look for more ways to create change in their own lives. But how do you convince people to eat more veggies in a country like Australia, where our appetite for meat is among the biggest in the world? You talk to Rosemary Stanton. The legendary nutritionist and dietitian has been a staunch advocate for whole foods since the 1960s, and a lot of us probably grew up seeing her face on the telly or reading her words in magazines like Clio or hearing her on the radio. Good food, good health, with Rosemary Stanton. It's important for children to have enough calcium each day to make sure... We managed to get some time with Rosemary in her busy schedule, and, yeah, this interview took place in the backseat of a car. Rosemary Stanton, thank you so much for joining us. I have to ask, what did you eat for breakfast today? Well, I was actually on a flight this morning. Ah, okay. So I didn't have what I usually have. In fact, what came to me was virtually a cake. I looked at the ingredients and there were 17 ingredients, oh. including lots and lots of things with numbers on them and a use-by date of almost one year's time. So oh, I gosh. decided not to eat it. But normally I would have a bowl of my homemade muesli with some fruit, might be strawberries out of the garden, or banana, and some yogurt. Yum. Is breakfast the most important meal of the day? Well, it is for me, but it isn't for everybody. So it really does, it's an individual sort of thing. So you had an amazing career. I mean, we've grown up watching you. Um, so many of my family members admire you across generations. Uh, you're always smiling and you're always passionate about what you um, believe in. A lot of things must have come and gone in that time as well. You've been working in this space for more than 50 years. What are some of the principles that you've stuck to and what are some of the things you might have dropped along the way? Well, I've always stuck to the need to have less sugar. Less Mm. doesn't mean none, but it certainly means less. I've always stuck to that. I've always stuck to the whole idea that food should taste good. Mm. I think that is so important. We have to have the joy of eating good food. I've yet to see the person who thinks that a fast food hamburger is the best tasting hamburger in the world. People eat fast food burgers because they're quick, they're cheap, and the toilets are clean at the place where you buy them. Very true. Whereas if you want a really good burger, you come to my place. (laughs) I'll make you one that is absolutely delicious, but it'll have quite a lot of veggies in it and quite a small meat patty. You've just invited a few thousand people over (laughs) for a a hamburger. I appreciate that, Rosemary. Everyone always said you're very generous. It's very true. Um, But... It's interesting because you said you, you you alluded to the fact that even in the '60s you were warning people about sugar, but very often you know the public health and nutrition communities are accused of sending us off on the wild goose chase about fat at the cost of sugar. So that's not actually the case. No, it's not the case. In fact, the main principles that people should eat plenty of vegetables and fruit, and they should choose whole grains rather than refined grains, and they should have less sugar and not too much salt. 
that they've been around for the whole of my career. Mm. Now, the reasons for it have changed because in the 60s, obesity was not a problem. So we weren't worried about people being overweight. We were worried about their teeth and we were worried to make sure that they're having enough food for the level of physical activity mm. they had. And it wasn't really until the 1990s that things changed. And it was in the 1990s that it became normal, in inverted commas, for people to have packeted drinks and packeted snack foods in their yeah. lunch every day. Didn't have that before that. And you mentioned recently that uh, when you first worked in this space in the 1960s, um, you didn't have to tell people to eat fruit and vegetables, or particularly vegetables, because meals didn't come without vegetables. And you, and you even you even mentioned that you know you didn't pay an extra twelve dollars for a side of vegetables with your main meal. Can you tell me a bit about the the rise and fall of veggies? Well, veggies were part of the evening meal, and everybody had an evening meal, and they sat at a table and they ate it in those days with a knife and fork. Fortunately, mm. we've we've come a long way, and sometimes we eat our evening meal with chopsticks these days, or just a fork. But we ate it with a knife and fork, and it always had vegetables. So there were always quite a few vegetables on the plate, and they took up quite a lot of space. Mm. They very often came out of a home garden or your neighbour's garden, and people swapped them. But there were always vegetables there. Now we have a situation where people eat on the run, mm. so they have a snack, or they eat in front of a screen, or they eat something they can eat in one hand that they don't need to have a table. And so we've lost that joy of eating together and sharing food, but we've also lost the veggies mm. because you can't eat peas and spinach when you're racing to a meeting and you're having your dinner in the car. And people almost, it seems like people need to be sold on their veggies. You know, it, we're hearing more and more of the reasons why we should be eating more vegetables and maybe a little bit less meat for health reasons, but also for sustainability reasons. Why is it so hard to sell the message of, you know, eat more veg? I think it's partly because a lot of people haven't seen them growing. They don't know when they're fresh. They don't know what to do with them very often. And because it changes the lifestyle if you're going to eat vegetables, because you really need to put them on a plate or in a bowl mm. and sit down somewhere to eat them. So it is a, a whole way of eating that has, has changed. And eating on the run means that we have packet food, we have fast foods, we have takeaways, we have stuff that just does not contain vegetables. So people now need to realise that there is a great joy in eating vegetables if they're fresh and delicious and if they're nicely cooked. And we can learn how to cook vegetables and things like legumes by talking to people who've come from countries or their parents or their grandparents have, where these things were always a part of the diet mm. and where they weren't just boiled. Boiled vegetables are boring. <laughs> it's, so, it's so true. I, I have Italian roots and uh, my grandmother, my nonna, she used to make the broccoli with olive oil and garlic, a little bit of salt, and then you kind of steam, saute and slightly fry the broccoli. The amount of people I have converted to broccoli who are now broccoli fanatics because of that recipe, having come from just years of eating mushy, tasteless broccoli. Yes, and it's very true. I, I remember telling, asking my children, and saying this, you can have one food that you don't want to eat, what don't you like? And one of them picked anything with liver. And I thought that was fair enough. And another one said, well, I can't really see any reason why people would eat zucchini. But then we started doing zucchini on the barbecue mm. and with some nice yes. marinade on them. And suddenly he said, oh, I can see a reason why people would eat zucchini. <laughs> you make me hungry. Now, Rosemary, you're an ambassador for Meat Free Mondays. How much of a difference does it make cutting down meat one day a week? Is that really going to make any difference to the world or to our own bodies? The answer is yes. And if you cut it down on a couple of other days, it would make even more difference. I don't think you have to cut it out completely, but we certainly don't have to stop making meat the centre of the meal. Usually when kids come in and say, what's for dinner? 
you're told in terms of the meat. Mm. And that's always the sort of dominant thing. It needs not to be. So Meat Free Mondays was established to give people an idea that you can actually have a meal without meat and it can be a delicious meal and it can be an interesting meal and it can also be cooked by somebody other than just a parent. Mm. So we need to get everybody thinking about what they can do with something that isn't just straight meat. I often think about a weekday vegetarian as, a, as another way of framing that same thing. I, I try to be a weekday vegetarian. And for me, it's not about necessarily just eating less meat, but it's also about enjoying the meat that I do eat and not wasting any. And I find that if I eat it on weekends when I have more time to cook it and enjoy it and share it, but also then it kind of becomes special because it's something I do on weekends, which is a special time of the week. It's, it, it's the fun part of the week. And so that kind of, I found that it's been really helpful for me in not only reducing the amount of meat I'm eating, but really enjoying meat when I do eat it and understanding that it's a privilege. I think that's really important. And, and we have people from other cultures who have never made meat the centre of the meal. It comes with the meal or it might be part of a feast mm. or a special occasion. So I've got nothing against feasts. I think a really good feast is fantastic, but a really good feast takes time and effort to prepare and you don't want to do it every day. So that most of the time you'll have delicious food that we need things that have to be quick to prepare. Very few of us have time to spend two hours in the kitchen before dinner. But there's lots of interesting and good things that don't contain meat that can be cooked quickly. And then keep the meat for occasions. But also think about the kind of meat you're eating. Mm. And meat, we need to choose the appropriate kinds of meat, grown in appropriate conditions. So lot feeding is ridiculous when you're growing, using a lot of land to grow grains or crops that you then feed to animals. You transport them a long way to get them there. That's silly. But if we have some integrative farming where we have farming as part of a mixed farm where the compost can use the animal wastes, but that means we have to have less meat because when you have those kind of farms, you're not going to produce huge amounts of meat. Australians are among the biggest meat eaters in the world, and yet at the same time, we neglect all of those other plant-based healthy foods, the veggies, the legumes, the nuts, the seeds. There's a whole lot of things that could make food much more interesting. And of course, don't, let's not forget the herbs and spices that mm. make it taste really good. So Rosemary, are you a vegetarian? No, I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm not a big meat eater. Can you be a healthy vegetarian? You can absolutely be a healthy vegetarian. Some people are very much against vegetarians and particularly against vegans. And that seems to me to be a crazy idea. You know, I mean, I'm not a vegetarian, but I like vegetarians. I've got a couple in my family. I <laughs> Some of my add. best friends are vegetarians. <laughs> Some of my family are vegetarians. I can't find any evidence that a small amount of meat has any health adverse effects mm -hmm. on health. Uh, but I can find lots of reasons why a large amount of meat does. And I can also find lots of reasons why producing a large amount of, of meat is really not conducive to our need to reduce global warming. Mm. And so what sorts of risks are there if we were to continue to consume the amount of meat we do eat for our own bodies? And what do we need to be mindful of if we're going to reduce the amount of meat we try to consume? Well, the evidence is probably strongest for the adverse effect of red meat in increasing your risk of bowel cancer. There's also quite a bit of evidence that you probably increase your risk of some kinds of, of heart disease as well. They're not huge risks, but they are risks that we could control. When we start looking at the environmental risks, then using land to produce animals is not the best use of the land. You can actually produce far more of other products from the same amount of land so that you don't have to go and cut down all the forests so that you can grow food for the animals. You can use a lesser amount of, of land 
to produce food for humans and still keep some animals there. Mm. But you don't have to have none, but less. And this brings up a really important question or discussion, Rosemary, because there's been this rise of flexitarianism, which I love that word, this sort of very flexible way of eating. And it doesn't define necessarily one diet, but it does involve reducing the amount of meat most of us eat, and particularly the parts of the world where you you and I are from. But what does it mean for cultures and parts of the the world and parts of our society where meat has a very important place uh, in in the rich tapestry of culture? And what does it mean for certain populations that maybe are currently being excluded from consuming enough meat to stay healthy? Yes, you don't actually need meat to stay healthy, but it is a nutrient-rich food. And so if you have a limited amount of food, meat can add some important nutrients, particularly for children Mm. and particularly during pregnancy. So that it does have a role that is very important in some societies. You can get by quite well without it if you've got enough other foods. The whole flexitarian approach, I think, is terrific. I would describe myself as a flexitarian. Uh, now, that doesn't which, mean you can touch your toes, does it? <laughs> it does, actually, but still, <laughs> but it probably also means that, that I might have food from different cultures often. It means that sometimes I have meat, sometimes I don't have mm. meat. Um, but whatever I'm eating, I must say it always has to have vegetables. I feel mm. deprived if I don't get them. Um, but being flexible means that you can enjoy a wide variety of cuisines cooked in, in different ways by different people mm. so that you can encompass all of the different groups that live in Australia. And I think that brings up a really important point that it's not a sort of zero sum. It's not all or nothing, that it's probably about balance. It's about being flexible, whether it's the culture of the food, whether it's the diversity. I mean, even just thinking about the more diversity we have on our plates in terms of cultural, but also food types, all the different fruits and vegetables, the more diversity we have, the more biodiversity we will support in our food systems, the more security we'll have long-term as our climates change to be able to continue to grow food and nourish populations. Because we're not just growing four things and then making our entire food, you know, our diet from those four ingredients. We actually have a, a huge range of biodiversity of food, which is also what our bodies need. So making those connections between what the planet needs, what our body needs, and also then the power of food to drive important conversations around connection and love and culture. And yeah, I think it's this is something you've been championing for years, but it's it must be somewhat gratifying to see finally these bigger conversations are happening across society. It is, and it's great to see people starting to think about the enjoyment of food and the sharing of food looking at a great diversity of foods so that you've got different colours, you've got different textures, you've got a whole range of different foods, that you don't have the same thing every Monday night, for example, that you have a a much greater variety of what you're eating. It's all very exciting. It's also very delicious. Mm. And I think it could really help to bring people together much more to get back to really seeing food as a dynamic thing, not just something that comes in a packet. Most of the things that come in the packet tend to be made from the same few ingredients, mostly refined starches, a lot of fat, a lot of sugar, a lot of salt. That's not real food. Mm. We need to go back to having real food that's colourful, that's delicious and also nutritious, and that will be much kinder to the environment. Let alone the plastic that it's, of course, wrapped in. Yes. And that's a whole other discussion. Look, to finish up and before we all come over for a hamburger, all (laughs) 3,000 of us, um, what's the most important change that people can make in their diets right now? I think to to know more about what you're eating and 
Back in the 1960s, I started telling people that if there's more than five ingredients in the product, it probably isn't something that you should be eating. So if we went back to, there's, there's obviously exceptions, my homemade muesli would be one, <laughs> has more than five things in it. But if we could just sort of get people thinking more about what is it that I'm eating, read the, it's on the label, that's mm. a bit boring to read, I know, but if it's got a long list of things, don't bother reading it. Mm. If it's got a long list, it's something that's not going to be really good for you. Go fresh. Go fresh, I love it. Okay, so we've heard that eating more plants is good not just for our bodies, but also, more likely, for the world. But what if you just don't like them or you don't really know what to do with them? Here's what Deakin University dietitian Dr. Elena George says. So always make things tasty. Um, adding, again, with my Mediterranean diet research, we often you know, add olive oil to vegetables. So you know, if you're having green veggies, so something like dandelion greens or chicory root or if you're having broccoli or spinach whatever's part of your diet that you like to have that's green rather than just boiling it and putting it on a plate you know stir fry in some olive oil or put it in the oven with some oil with some garlic add flavor to it if you like chili if you like adding some lemon juice making them taste really good will make them one of your favorite parts of your meal rather than something that you're trying to avoid while you're eating what do you reckon? Sandra, what are your tips? Well, first, I mean, if you love your meat, probably the two veggies that I would recommend getting to know better are mushrooms and eggplants because they, depending on how you cook them, they're a great meat alternative. They're hearty. They soak up the mm. flavours and, you know, they've got a, a, an amazing texture. But probably my favourite veg and the one that's going to blow everyone's mind is our family recipe for broccoli. Mm. Now, once you know this, broccoli <laughs> will never be the same to you again, I guarantee what you do is olive oil, mm. garlic, chop up a couple of cloves of garlic, good quality purple garlic, local garlic. Uh, before it gets colour, but it starts to become aromatic, chop up the broccoli into little, maybe like 10 pieces from the head, rinse it and throw it into the pan when it's still a little bit wet. Mm. Add about a quarter of a cup of water, a good uh, pinch of salt and cover it on, on medium until the broccoli is basically tender. And... It gets this amazing olive oil, garlic flavour through it. And I swear, if you've ever had mushy, steamed <laughs> or boiled broccoli and it's put you off for life, prepare to be born again because this is amazing. Yum. Can't wait. Well, actually, broccoli is one of my favourite vegetables, <laughs> so it's not hard for me to be sold on that. But I have to say that I think for me, it like there was some sort of palate switch that happened as I grew up, right? Like I was a kid that hated greens yeah. and then... Suddenly, I, I just craved them. I really think it's what you do with them, though. Peas are the same. So, you know, we think of like mushy, terrible boiled peas. But if you caramelise, slow, slowly caramelise onion in some olive oil and then throw in peas, fresh parsley, a bit of salt, maybe half a cup of water and, and cook them until they're just soft. Oh, they're so good. They're like sweet. And if you add like just a tiny bit of prosciutto or something, you get that like slight umami flavour through it. Mm. They're so good. And you can just eat a whole bowl of peas for dinner, I swear. Or you stir through some odichette pasta if you want something a bit heartier. Or have it on the side of something else. But I swear, it's how you cook veg. Yeah. So, so learn to cook a couple well and just enjoy them. They're so good. Right. And seasonality might be the key to getting the best out of them. So here's a guy who can help with that. How you going? Um, my name's Marcello Ferranda. I'm the uh, head grower at Ferranda Farms. 
Marcello's mum and dad had been running their family farm on the outskirts of Melbourne since 1963. They started out growing mostly Italian-style greens like broccoli and artichoke and cauliflower, and they used to be a major supplier to the food industry. But these days, they mostly sell through farmers' markets, and their range now includes fashionable stuff like kale and purple cauliflower. And their stuff is really beautiful there at farmers' markets all over Melbourne. And I met Marcello at the Abbotsford Convent Farmers' Market. Oh, yeah, of course I didn't like eating vegetables. I had to grow them. I had to see them every day. But um, I think you can do lots of different fun things with them to make them more interesting. And the older you get, the more you, more you want to eat them sort of thing, the more you appreciate their benefits. I like mine on the rawer side. Just the lightly steamed or lightly blanched um, straight out of the paddock. Yeah, just break a collie in half and grab eat a florette off it. Hey team, Dr Sandro here. For more information and advice on any of the things we've chatted about today, make sure you also consult your own doctor. Check out my Twitter feed, at Sandro DeMeo, for news and information from the world of good health. And if you've got any questions or feedback about what we've been discussing today on the podcast, use the hashtag InGoodHealth. And please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your mates, tell your mum, it all helps. Thank you to Miranda from Melbourne Farmers Markets for helping us find Marcello. Check out the website mfm.com.au to find out when the next farmers market is in your area. But most of all, thanks to Rosemary Stanton for squishing into a car with us. What a moment. We won't forget it. This episode was produced by me, Dewey Cook, and mixed by Jesse Bear. See you later.